Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming here. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome to our Good Friday service at Kensington, which is, over the years, has developed into my favorite service of the year. Before we uh, go down that path, I just want to let you know that because we have so many artistic elements that we don't want to interrupt, uh, we are going to receive our offering now at the beginning of our services. And so as the ushers are coming down with the offering, I just want to say, first of all, uh, if you are visiting here today, you don't have to worry about giving or partaking at all or, or, or you know, participating. Uh, this is designed for people who are part of Kensington who have decided that this is their place of worship. And uh, whether you give online, which 80% of you do that, or whether you give in the room, we're always careful to say thank you for giving, for giving back to what God has blessed us with, and uh, thank you for believing what God's Word says about giving back. Well, I want you to know that the reason why Good Friday is my favorite service of the year is because it's one of the only times where we get to 100% focus on the heaviness of the cross. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. Today, this is part two of a three-part series we're in called Possible. And tonight, we're living in the question, that the same question that all the disciples and others asked when Jesus was finally killed on the cross, which is, could it be over? Uh, the reason why Jesus came to the earth, the reason why God sent his only son was really for only one reason. He came to the earth to die on a cross to pay for your sins and my sins. And the Bible says that there was a sin problem. And because every single one of us are imperfect, because we all have a sinful nature and we inherited the, and are under the bondage of sin's price, the Bible says that sin demands a penalty. And the book of Romans tells us that the penalty that sin demands is death. The book, the, the, the book of Hebrews also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so therefore, God had sent Jesus into the world specifically and willingly to go to the cross to die on it so that he could pay for your sins and mine and the penalty that sin demands. Now tonight, we're going to be looking at the trial of Jesus and looking at uh, his sentencing and then the crucifixion through the lens of a character that you may not have heard his name before. And even if you've heard his name, you have, the chances are good, you've probably never seen an entire service devoted to this character's name. Although his name is right at the center of the trial and the sentencing. And the character's name is Barabbas. Uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor, had a tradition that he was observing during Passover. And the tradition was he gets to release a prisoner. And there was Jesus and there was Barabbas. And he presented that before the crowd. So I want to read for you the scripture account and the story that we're given and all the information that is given to us about Barabbas. In Matthew chapter 27, look at verse number 15. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. If you look over at Luke chapter 23, if you break from the Matthew narrative, uh, Luke gives us more insight and more details about who Barabbas was. Verse 19 says, Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Going back to our Matthew passage, verse 17. 
As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Now this is all the information that we have about Barabbas, but we are going to take artistic liberty tonight and try to explore some things. And honestly, as I was planning this service, I, do, I did what I always do. When I read passages of scripture, I try to imagine what it must have been like to be there. And so we're reading between the lines tonight and we're asking the question, surely Jesus and Barabbas had an exchange in the prison cell. After all, they were in the same prison cell before they went to trial. And if they did have an exchange, what would Jesus have said to Barabbas? How would Barabbas have felt not only about his own upcoming execution, knowing that he was deserving of the sentencing. How must he have felt about the entire exchange where he was released and Jesus was sentenced to death? So the, the questions are these, and I always think about this. What was Barabbas thinking? How was he feeling? But even more important than that are these questions. Why was Barabbas a part of the story in the Bible? Why is he in the center of everything? Why did God put Barabbas in the story? And what does Barabbas have to do with you? And what does he have to do with me? The Filth. I share this cell with rats. Lying on the damp, cold floor makes every bone ache. Oh, and the smell. The sour stench of prisoners dying, human waste, in despair. I was someone once. Some might have even called me a hero. 
I fought against the Roman enemy. The, the anger was so deep, I mistook it for purpose. Oh, I wish I could hate them now as I did before. That burning, it felt like strength. But no. Now when I hear the guards. Ready to die, revolutionary? Meet your end, Barabbas, who was to overthrow Rome. I beg. I beg to live. I beg to not be beaten. I beg to see the outside. Sometimes I even beg them to use my name when they're cursing me so I can remember who I am. There was a new prisoner here they also call a revolutionary. I've never seen his face nor heard his voice, but they speak of him often and they are confused by him. They say he is a revolutionary without weapons and a king without a kingdom. But they sound as if they almost believe him. But what sort of king would be in this place? This impenetrable darkness. Darkness without, darkness within. There is no light here in this stinking cell. Often my body, it jerks awake and I hadn't even known if I was asleep. It's impossible to distinguish if I'm awake or slumbering in this darkness. Likewise, if I'm alive or dead. see myself as I really am. Shabby, weak, and alone. So is this shaft of light a curse or a gift? Sometimes the guards who know I hate this darkness, they say, put him in with the new man who thinks he's the light of the world. And then they laugh, but they still seem worried by his words somehow. I know this is the same prisoner whom they call the revolutionary and king. But what does light of the world mean? I, I can't make any sense of it. And who says such things as a prisoner? There cannot be anything to this. Just a captive's deluded dream. It's a, a way to bear this darkness. Imagine it, though. I wish I could hope. If you, God, were there. If you had not yet forsaken me for all I've done. Would you free me from this darkness? Even as I speak these words, I, I doubt. Is it even possible? I heard one of the guards say that during a feast tomorrow, the Romans intend to release a prisoner back to the Jewish people. The governor, he wants the new man released, but they will bring up two to give the crowd a sense of control by deciding life and death. <laughs> Such things are good for alleviating the tension, I suppose. It would be a cruel joke to be taken up out of this hole 
only to be shut down here again. I could not bear it. If tomorrow I am the one chosen to stand alongside him, this light of the world, I will fall short. All want me dead and no one pities me. It is finished for me.
whatever makes you happy. It's whatever you want. He's so very special. I wish I was special. But I'm a I'm such a weirdo What am I even doing here? I don't belong here I don't belong I found out I was to be the other prisoner taken before the crowd. They kicked me awake and said so. I felt a flutter of hope just to move beyond these walls, but I knew I must kill this feeling of hope. It was weakness. I couldn't bear to return to this place after seeing life and inhaling sweet air, so I must remain dull in my despair. To feel anything would be too painful. And then, I imagined passing him by, both of us in chains. I, I planned to say these heavy, jealous words. You walk away free and alive today, but I will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. I didn't know. I didn't know he would be like that. When I said my words, he looked at me with kindness. His face was bloodied and bruised, but he smiled just a little, and he said, I have been sent that you may live. A riddle? Was he deranged? Or was he more? Somehow divine? Could it be possible? Did God hear my feeble prayer? Suddenly, my numb exterior crumbled, and I, I was desperate to know more, to ask more, to hear him speak again. I called out, Man, why do you say this? But the guards, they dragged me away to Pilate. Pilate, oh, that pompous Roman governor. He made a show of this release. He spoke grandiose and gestured elaborately. It was quite the drama and the crowd was pulsing with tension. Pilate said, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And do you know, the crowd began to chant my name, Barabbas, Barabbas. For a moment, excitement surged in me. Was I remembered and loved by my people? But then I started to see that it was not this at all. It was hatred for the other prisoner that made them say so. The religious leaders pointed accusations at him and didn't even glance my way. Pilate was astonished and displeased. His showmanship fell away and he shouted at the crowd, Why? What evil has he done? This man, a healer, 
Rumors say he can raise the dead. This man, a murderer. And you would set him free? He was growing agitated. This is not just. Defend yourself, Christ. But this man, for I don't know what to call him, he remained silent and still. He looked right at the crowd condemning him. I asked within myself, why does he stay silent? Why does he seem to accept this death sentence? And the thought became strong upon me. He wants me to live. Is that possible? Is that possible? Pilate could not convince them, and he gave up the man to them to be put to death, to be crucified. I began to sob. I could not contain so much emotion. I was in shock. How had all things so turned? to live. What joy to live again. To have another chance at life. But being given life meant that his was to be taken. A brutal death. And so here I am now. All I have described to you has just unfolded. And I am holding in my hands and looking at it from each side. I am very confused. But I am alive. And free. And grateful. I think. Just imagine. I was released. I am free. I am free. I am alive. I am alive. It is something to hope again. I feel both gratitude and guilt. I know I was the wrongdoer, and he he was not. So now I must wrestle this and find clarity. I must. I deserved to die. I ended people's lives. Many of them. At first I was enraged when I killed and I felt strong. But those feelings passed and the weakness and regret set in. Even before I was apprehended, I had started to despise myself. Then the darkness within me was made worse by the inky blackness of that cell. I couldn't tell day from night. I was terrified to die, although it seemed I already was dead. Have you ever had a nightmare and been unable to determine if you were awake or still asleep? 
It was like that for me, perpetually in the darkness. I heard many things of the new prisoner. The guards were always speaking of him. They said people called him king, light of the world, and son of God, Christ. I did not believe it, but I wanted to. Or maybe I started to believe it. It made me attempt a prayer to God whom I hadn't spoken to in years. I asked him to free me from the darkness, and the following day, I was released. How is that? Did he hear me? Is it possible? What did the man mean when he said, I have been sent that you may live? It happened just so. Who would have sent him? Why would anyone be willing to die for another? And for me, the worst kind of man. If it were true, if he was sent by God to free me from the darkness, what would that mean? Would it mean that God loves me? That I'm lovable to God despite it all? Is that possible? an incredible job and when if you've ever seen the passion of the christ the movie uh, they depict barabbas much differently and it's just their interpretation of who he might have been and this obviously is an entirely different consideration and yet we have absolutely no idea the exchange that they may have had or what barabbas was thinking and feeling but what's amazing is is when you think about this you have to wonder if, to yourself, you know, why was Barabbas in the story? I don't know about you, but every single Easter, every preparation that I have for Good Friday, in fact, even before I was a pastor, when I would read through, you know, the crucifixion on Good Friday especially, and I came upon Barabbas, the one thing that I do know for sure is how I felt and what I thought. Because when I came upon Barabbas and I discovered that there was an opportunity for a prisoner to go free. And especially when it was brand new news for me, I started to think about all the illegal manipulation and corruption that the religious leaders were doing to push Jesus to the cross. They wanted him dead because they were threatened by him. 
And the Bible literally says that they manipulated the crowd. They leveraged their position, having the people under, the, under their thumb. And they were trying to not only illegally try him, but also because it was illegal to crucify somebody on the Sabbath, which was their Saturday, they had to rush through everything to push it through so it would happen on Friday. So when you think about all the corruption, and then all of a sudden, right before it happens, right before the sentencing, there's this opportunity. And you have a murderer you know, in a, in, a, in a rebellion, a rebel, a revolutionary, and then you have Jesus. And you think about Barabbas, and what are we told about him? And you think to yourself, this is blasphemy for Barabbas to go free. He's a murderer. He's a thug. He's a crook. He deserves the penalty, and, and, and he probably knows it, and so does everybody else. But what has Jesus, what has Jesus done up to this point except to heal? Except to love others and to teach others how to love others who are unlovable, uh, you know, how, what has Jesus done except perhaps set people free and pardon them and forgive them? And he opened deaf ears and opened blind eyes and healed the lepers and healed the sick and healed the lame. What has Jesus done? And then when you think about the exchange where it says that Barabbas was set free, that means that right there in the middle of everybody, somebody had to have walked up and unshackled Barabbas. And as he walks down, the scripture tells us that Jesus remained silent. I love how they depicted that, where Barabbas said, or where, where Pilate was saying, defend yourself, Christ. But yet we know that Jesus remained silent. And so what man would do that? If you think about it, any normal prisoner, especially one who knows that he committed no crime, one where there was so much corruption and manipulation, who would not yell to the crowd as the crowd is, you know, defending himself, trying to persuade the crowd. Who would remain silent? And yet it's because we know Jesus remained silent because he knew the will of his heavenly father. He knew that Barabbas had to be set free. And he knew that he was destined to go to the cross. And so when you think about Barabbas, there's a couple of different conclusions, and here's the first one that the father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. See, the father knew that he had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that eventually and ultimately he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. And so I don't know who Barabbas credited for his release. Who was he thinking was responsible for his release? It doesn't tell us. Perhaps he thought that the crowd was responsible for his release. Maybe he gave credit to Pilate uh, who, for making the decision. Or maybe he was perceptive enough to witness the corruption from the religious leaders that were happening, and so perhaps he gave them credit. But, but none of those are the right answer because it was the love of the Heavenly Father that set Barabbas free. And when you think of Barabbas, what do you think of? You think of the only thing that we know about him. You think murderer. You think sinner. You think person who's a thug and a thief and, and, and somebody who is, you know, uh, deserving of a, of a penalty. But let me ask you this question. In that moment when Barabbas was walking down the steps free, what did God think of Barabbas in that moment? Our Heavenly Father looks down and says, I love Barabbas. I love him. And I'm glad he's set free. 
when you think about why Barabbas is in the scripture, you think about this Bible, there's a lot of different parts in here. God gives us all sorts of different things in this book. Some are meant for inspiration. Some are meant to give us instruction. Some verses are meant just for logistics. Some are poetry. But there is an incredible amount of symbolism in the Bible. There's an incredible amount of things that we are able to look at and obviously see what we are meant to see and and, and hear what we are meant to hear. And so the other thing that we observe about this, about Barabbas, is this, that we are Barabbas. It is meant for us to understand that you and I are no different than him because Jesus Christ came to die on a cross for your sin and my sin. You see, that's you and that's me. I deserve to pay the price that sin demands. When I think about the worst of who I am, and when I think about the depths and the ugliness of my heart, although I wish it were better, and when I think about all my imperfections or my unwillingness to listen or rebel or any, all of that stuff, when I think about all of it, I think Jesus Christ has pardoned and released me. And he's released you. And we are Barabbas. The book of Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, says it this way. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about this. I don't know if Barabbas came to faith. It's going to be fun to go to eternity, you know, and get to heaven and meet Barabbas and ask him if he's there and, and, just, and just ask him and say, what was it like? We could only speculate. But listen, here's what I know for sure. I know for sure because, because of him being the center of the spectacle that after Jesus rose from the grave, you better believe that Barabbas heard that Jesus rose from the grave, that he was who he claimed to be, which means he is the son of God. And so I wonder and I speculate even further, how did Barabbas feel about that? How how would you feel if you recognize, I would say there's no way he's the son of God. I deny it and there's no way. Why? Because that would mean that I'm the guy that's responsible. I I got set free. He took my place. I refuse to be that guy. I don't know how I would respond if I were in that situation. And who knows, maybe Barabbas did investigate. Maybe he pressed into the issue. And the scripture doesn't tell us, but maybe, just maybe, he came to faith in some way. But you know what? If he did, I wish that he would have written a gospel. Can you imagine the gospel according to Barabbas? And guess what? That would be the closest thing to a gospel written by you or me. You see, Jesus was not a martyr because he went to the cross willingly. He did it on purpose. And when Pilate sentenced him, it says that he was flogged with a cat of nine tails. And the book of Matthew says it was lead-tipped. We read in other places in secular history that there could be other things on on the cat of nine tails, glass or bone or rocks. And when they whipped, when the Romans whipped that 
you know, whip around his body. It would wrap around him and stick into his flesh and they would tear it apart. And I want you to know that 40 lashes was deemed as illegal and lethal. And so Pilate ordered him be lashed 39 times. Just one short of being lethal. And with his flesh being ripped apart, other commentators and, and, and scientists and uh, uh, doctors, when they take a look at the medical look at the crucifixion, said that even after the lashing of the whip, he would be barely recognizable as a man. His flesh would have been hanging off, being able to see his insides, blood everywhere. And what does the Bible say? After his whipping, he went down the way up to Calvary and he was forced to carry his own cross. And he walked the Via Dolorosa, which is called the way of suffering. And there, what happened? The Bible says he was mocked, he was beaten. To live in the heaviness of the cross means to understand that even before he got to the cross, they threw a blanket over his head and the Bible says they took turns punching him in the face with a blanket over his head, saying, if you're the son of God, then tell me, Christ. Prophesy, tell us who hit you, which one of us hit you. The Bible says that they grabbed his beard and they ripped it from his face. And you could imagine how much blood would have ran down from the crown of thorns with the thorns being like spikes. And they fashioned a crown to mock him because he claimed to be king of the Jews. And as they forced it into his scalp, the most rigid of all the tissue, it bled profusely. It would have covered him, probably not even be able to open his eyes. And yet because he was a strong man and because he was a carpenter, he carried his cross and he went through the stations and he had trouble. We know that Simon was forced out of the crowd to help him carry it the rest of the way till he got to Calvary or the place of the skull or Golgotha. And up on Calvary, they laid the cross on the ground and they put Jesus upon it and they put two nails, one through each hand and then they bent his legs ever so slightly and put his one foot on the other and they drove one single spike through both feet. And then they grabbed the cross and lifted it up And the hole that was made for the cross, as the cross fell into its place, just that thud alone would have probably thrown all of Jesus' appendages out of his sockets. He he would have probably been thrown out of his joints, and he was kind of there on the cross, suffering through the most torturous form of execution ever devised by mankind up until that point. Because the cruelness of the cross was the seesaw effect of the cross. And the seesaw effect was because his legs were bent so slightly and the Romans were experts at tortures. When Jesus was putting all the weight on his hands and bent over, he couldn't breathe. You can't take a breath. And he would have to hold his breath until he could no longer stand the pain coming from his hands. And then he would have to shift the weight of his body from his hands and then push and lift himself up from his feet, putting all the pain on his foot just so that he could breathe and take a breath. And then when he could no longer stand the pain on his feet, he would have to hold his breath and collapse and put all the weight back on his hands. And it would go back and forth. It is still known today, and even in secular history, talks about the cruelty of the cross because the cross was not a religious thing. Keep in mind, it was a Roman thing. And it was, it was, it was devised as an execution method that was very popular at that time and reserved for the worst of the worst 
of the worst of criminals, which is why it is so surprising that the crowd were talked into viciously screaming that method of execution. Now, these next few moments, we have a lot to take care of. Here's the first thing that's going to happen. The ushers are going to come out and they're going to pass communion. And so ushers, if you would start that process now, here's the way this is going to happen. I know that a lot of us, we grew up in, or even a part now of other faiths and other religions where as soon as you receive the element, you take it. But we're going to ask you that you held on to both elements. So both elements will be passed on to you right now. And I want you to do me a favor and hold on to the bread and hold on to the cup. And then we're going to take those later. So as the ushers are taking care of that, and as they're passing both the bread and the cup, and as you were holding on to that, uh, I just want to go ahead and tell you one more thing about the cross. We have just lived in for just a few moments the heaviness of the cross, realizing that Jesus died on it as a substitution for you and me, that we are Barabbas in the story. But that actually wasn't the most painful thing about the cross. The most painful thing wasn't in the physical world. The most unbearable thing for Jesus was in the spiritual world. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus literally became sin on the cross. And the Bible says that when Jesus was on the cross right before he died, it says in the book of Mark, chapter number 15, verse number 34. It says, and at three in the afternoon, which is the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus became sin, the reason why God the Father and Jesus were separated is because God cannot have sin as a part of his person. We believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God, three persons. That's what's told to us. They have a relationship and they work together relationally in ways that we cannot understand. One God, three persons. But when Jesus becomes sin, God the Father cannot have sin be a part of himself. So he turns his head and for the first time in all of eternity past and the only time for all of eternity future, God the Father and God the Son are separated and you and I will probably never understand the agony that Jesus suffered. And as much as he suffered physically, we have no idea how that moment was for him. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus, because of Jesus' sacrifice, I'm not saying that God cannot be with sinners, the sinfulness of mankind. The Bible tells us because of Jesus' sacrifice, sinful man can be with sinless God but God cannot have sin within himself. And so as Jesus cries out, just think of the agony that he must have suffered in ways that we, that we don't even know. The Bible says that he took upon this for, for us. In fact, it was even predicted hundreds of years before, very, very specifically with great detail in the book of Isaiah. And it reads this way. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So here's how our last moments are going to go. As you are holding on to both the bread and the cup, just know a few things about communion. The first one is this. If if this is different than a communion that you've ever experienced in the past, I want to invite you to be a part of it because uh, many churches view communion differently. We We believe it's an open invitation because the communion is an invitation to accept and realize and proclaim the death of Christ on the cross. The Bible actually never tells us how often we should partake of communion. There's not a single Bible verse chapter or verse that says how often we should do it. But it is given as an ordinance of the church. And Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And as he broke the bread, he did so in the upper room during the Last Supper. It was actually right before Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was betrayed. In fact, Judas had just left the room. One of his disciples who betrayed him. He went down to find the religious leaders to to betray Christ. And so Christ is up there in the room. And so what does he do? He breaks the bread and says, this is my body, which will be broken for you or which is broken for you. Then when he pours the cup, he says, this is my blood, which is spilled for you. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this is how it reads. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant or the new promise in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death. Every time we take communion, every time we proclaim the Lord's death, we are required to remember the heaviness of the cross. That's what communion is. And so Good Friday is the most appropriate time to take communion. And so this next song that Jenna is about to sing, Oh, the Blood of Jesus, which, by the way, is maybe my favorite moment throughout the entire Easter weekend. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to sit and truly think about what the bread represents, which is what Jesus asked the disciples to do, To, to, to think about what the spilling of the cup represents and how Jesus did it for you and for me. And that God loved us so much that he didn't ask us to pay the price that sin demands. And that we were pardoned and we were set free. As a a teenager, one of my 
most worshipful moments and one of my favorite moments was when I used to reflect and hold the bread and hold the cup and listen to the words of a song and just reflect on what Jesus has done for me. And then what's going to happen is this is going to be our formal dismissal. There will be no more goodbye after the song because when the song ends, after you take the communion, whenever you're ready, on your own, during the song, after that moment happens, when the song ends, we're going to leave in a silent dismissal. And yes, when you come back, we're going to celebrate Easter. It's going to be a different feel, and we're looking forward to that. But for now, for tonight, we want to live in the heaviness of the cross. And so I'm going to ask that not a, not a single word be spoken in this room and that you reserve your words for either the lobby or the parking lot. And so as we take communion together and as we observe all of this as a church family, I'd love to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for your sacrifice. We are thankful that you loved every single one of us so much that you sent your only son into the world to take our place, to take our place on the cross so that we don't have to pay the price. God, thank you for pardoning us. Thank you for, for forgiving us. Father, you know the depths of our hearts and yet you love us the same. Father, thank you for your reckless love in our lives. Father, we worship you tonight. We bless you tonight. We ask, Lord, that every single one of us, we ask that we would feel the weight of the sacrifice, that we would be reminded of our gratitude and our worship and our response in these moments, God. Because in these moments, nothing else matters except this. This is our focus. We're gonna give thanks for Easter celebrations tomorrow and on Sunday, but for right now, God, we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh
Yes, the blood, it is mine.